Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I am your co-host, the board game geek, golden geek, ineligible co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is the similarly ineligible Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. I can't get a straight answer on whether we were disqualified by virtue of the fact that we would obviously win again, or because of those unfortunate pictures with us with goats. I'm not sure. It is the state we left the podium in, I'm afraid. Ooh, good call. Things happened. No regrets. No regrets, skis. So, this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then our feature game this week is El Grande, the big! And with that in mind, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, I talk about Clinic all the time, so I'm not going to go into it too much. But Clinic is a game where you're actually designing your own clinic. And now it has a campaign book. Mark, why does it have a campaign book? Because everything has to have a campaign book. By law? Clinic has almost 50 different modules that you can add to play. You can, in this campaign book, it sort of says you can set up and it gives you sets of five different modules to add in your games. And we just decided that there is no way we're going to make it through all those games to start before we start the actual story campaign. So we just jumped right in with both feet and it had a nice, actually, it was like a two-page story mark. It was, it was really long. Anyway, you're, you're, you come to a new town, you're starting your hospital, you go to your hotel with a nice view of the construction site. You want to start a nice family hospital dealing with, with psychological problems and pregnancy. And so you have therapy dogs, you have a pregnant pregnancy going through the hospital you have what else was some of the other modules we have it it's about five different modules it was uh urban design modules where you have to the shape of the hospital has to be a certain way all very interesting things looking forward we're actually going to go back and play the first one again because it was quite a bit there was also janitors and Lots of new stuff, so and some things we shied away from because it was a lot of you know rules load right at the beginning. So we're going to go back and play that first scenario again, and it does have implications for the next story. You're supposed to keep track of certain things you do during the game, and then it's going to have implications on your next uh, session. So looking forward to more Clinic, designed by Albin Venard and put out by AV Studio Games. VR. There's no N. You always put an N in there. It's fascinatingly consistent. I'll give you that. I confess, I'm interested in looking at some of the fiction that you're talking about because I'm embarrassed to concede that it's possible that I missed what Clinic was doing all the time. All of the critiques about Clinic, some people complain too much about its emphasis on parking. We never had that complaint. We just thought it was funny. But we uh, we did complain that one of the dominant strategies is to let your your patients linger and get sicker inside the clinic. And this was pointed out by uh, someone I follow on Twitter who always has excellent observations. That's part of the satire. The claim here is that clinic is a satire of modern medical care. And so I'm curious to see if it's intentional satire or unintentional satire. And so my, my, my view on clinic has shifted a little bit. From the story and the way it goes, it's, it's definitely a play on hospitals. And I did employ that strategy. I went heavy. Uh, uh, bringing patients into your hospital is based on how many entrances you have to your hospital. I know that sounds silly, but it just makes sense. So you generate a number plus one. So you have four entrances plus one is a five value. So you're 
bringing cubes into the waiting rooms or you're shifting along the the tables. It's like, no, you don't have a heart problem. You're in fact have a broken leg and then you admit them to your hospital. So you can have a bunch of patients waiting in the waiting rooms and you just age them like fine wine. <laughs> they get up to a decent color so you can uh, work on getting your doctors up. There is, uh, what was the name of it? We read like in the rules it says this is all compatible with less stress or comfort care or something like that. And we read into what that was and that was uh, your doctors, if they treat a patient, they actually inst- they actually go up in value. Whereas at the end of the turn, all your doctors decrease. Ah. Right. And we thought that was a little excessive. So we sort of gamed our own rule. I know that's bad, but we did. We just said doctors that don't treat patients will degrade. Doctors that do treat patients will stay the same. So no burnout in your universe. That's right. I see. Well, it's better than actually like getting better, man. The doctors would all be red at the end or like to top level at the end. And I think it would be just too easy if your doctors went up every turn. I see. They treated patients. I played another game of Contra the Board Game. I've been talking a lot about this. I first mentioned the game last week. I talked about it on Bloat. And I played a slightly more difficult scenario, and I lost, which is nice, because in the easier scenarios, I had won thus far. But I wanted to mention it again, because I just wanted to stress something that I neglected to mention last week, and that is that the representation of women has been steadily getting better in Blacklist games, starting with the first wave of Street Masters, where it was all, all of the women were presented reasonably, unfortunately, in a very traditional video game, fighting game kind of mold, which is to say, rather embarrassingly and, and rather objectifyingly. And they'd been getting better. Second wave of Street Masters was very good. Ultra Quest was very good. Brook City was very good. And this is a huge step back. In Contra, there is one character of the four who is so ridiculously embarrassing that she is vastly worse than her representation was in a 2002 video game by Konami. That takes some doing. That's hard work. So impressive achievement, I guess, but boo for... Uh, so I just, I, I felt remiss in not having mentioned that previously in the context of Contra. I'm still enjoying the game. I just don't play with that character whenever I possibly can. So that's Contra the board game, designed by the Sadler Brothers, possibly one of the last offerings of the Sadler Brothers ever, given that Adam Sadler has left the tabletop gaming industry, published by Blacklist Games, and briefly released this year, and possibly to come back later. Who knows? So Mark, I got Furnace back to the table because uh, it is a great little engine building game and our game night has started up again so it's nice and light and super easy to teach got a game off very quickly three player game done in less than 45 minutes it's a four turn game where you're drafting cards with a very interesting bidding system where you have numbers one through four and they're different sizes and you can't have two of your uh chips on the same card and you can't have two numbers on the same card and so you start putting these tokens out in any order you wish and then you sort of resolve them in sort of an order and if you didn't win then you get what they call compensation and that is the goods at the top of the card times whatever number you put on it that is the hook of the game that makes it interesting the rest of it is just cube pushing to get money for victory points you have your own little power that you know, helps you out. They're all very powerful. It's a very neat little game. Furnace by Hobby World. It is designed by Ivan Lashin. Check it out if you haven't already. 
did you play by the intro rules, the expert rules, or the Walker accidental variant expert rules? It was the actual, I read it before just so I wouldn't, you know, impose my own rule. It was, you know, they're locked in, but you can sneak them in in the middle somewhere, but you you cannot You have to pre-plan your economy, but when you get a new card, it can go anywhere you want in the chain. That's correct. I get to play another game of Pulsar 2849, again, my favorite Vladimir Suki. Anytime you talk about Praga Caput Regni, I always think, yeah, sure, fine, but why not Pulsar? And I had a great time introducing it to Josephus. Two-player game, very, very quick. It's got a very good way of changing the dice drafting with two players. You don't draft your dice at the same time. There's sort of an interweave draft. So you effectively have two turn orders. So you kind of sort of have the turn order dynamics of a four-player game in a two-player game. And I very much appreciated that. Other than that, it was a lovely experience of zooming around the galaxy and setting gyrodyne spinning. One of the reasons why I prefer Pulsar 2849 to a lot of other Euro games, not just by Vladimir Suki, but also other point salad games of its ilk, is number one, the dice drafting introduces a level of player interaction and tense choices that I very much appreciate. And number two, it is very much point salad, but you can to tell a new player, look, it's mostly about setting gyrodyne spinning and you wouldn't be too far off. And that focuses a lot of the action on the map. You're discovering planets and setting these. I don't even, I don't really know what a gyrodyne is, Walker. They say in the rule book, it's gyrodyne, something, 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 science, something, something, power, something, something, points. But if I say gyrodyne, then people are like, ooh, that sounds scientific. Surely he knows what it means. You need to have watched the Jodie Foster alien movie to understand what a gyrodyne is is see here's the thing i've studied theology walker i have seen contact and the things that i remember about that are a lot of talk about theology space nazis that they thought for five seconds and much spinning yes but i don't think those were gyrodynes oh see they that was conspiracy mark they didn't want you to know they were gyrodynes moving on Pulsar 2849 was published by CGE about five years ago, and it still remains one of my preferred solid medium weight resource manipulation efficiency engine games. And there's a fair amount of variety out of the box in terms of the endgame scoring conditions and perhaps more importantly, the different technologies that will be introduced, the patents that might give you special powers or one-time bonuses and so forth. And it really is a nice balance in my experience between forward planning and reacting to what the dice give you. And that is essentially the kind of dynamic that I appreciate in the game that leverages dice. And so, big fan of Pulsar 2849. I recommend you try it if you haven't already. Vladimir Suki, CGE 2017. I went back to a game called Settlement because the day before we got burnt out on a game. More on that later. Settlement was a review copy from iGames. It was designed by Alexander Novinsky. And it is a great introduction game because it's very easy to teach. It Everything is very evident on the board, what you're doing. And it's one of those games that will scale. It'll be as deep as you want it to be. There are definitely combos that you can generate in your village or in the outskirts. It has this very interesting system where you can buy heroes anywhere on your turn. Any Sorry, any time on your turn. And if the heroes aren't out killing the monsters, then they're invading your outskirt territories. So there's a very interesting sort of timing where it's like, okay, there is a kobold hero here. He's not killing kobolds. I have tons of kobold territories. If I purchase that hero and they cycle out and another kobold one doesn't come up because there are, you know, five different monsters, kobolds, basilics, dragons, and uh, hydras. Sorry, only four different monsters. So you have a one in four chance probably of that card not coming up. And then you can use your outskirt tiles without 
you know, them all repopulating with monsters. And so it's an interesting engine where you're, you're doing linear lines of, of a nine by nine grid. So you set it up with interesting combos. It's like, well, I get victory points if I get gems. Well, I'll put this building here that gets me gems and you run that line and you get victory points. Very neat little game. Putting out fortresses, fighting the monsters. Glad I went back to it. Had lots of fun. Played a game of Race for the Galaxy. For reasons passing understanding, I decided to teach Huey and Louie how to play Race for the Galaxy. I say this because not because of my lack of appreciation of their intellectual capabilities, nor out of a lack of appreciation for Race for the Galaxy, because it remains one of my top ten games in my favorite tableau builder, but because teaching Race for the Galaxy is not a simple task. And indeed, there was a period of a few years after it was released where it felt like I was explaining Race for the Galaxy every week, and I never felt that I got any better. But... That's where Board Game Arena comes in. The Board Game Arena adaptation of Race for the Galaxy makes teaching Race for the Galaxy incredibly, incredibly simple. Because you don't have to learn all the iconographic language at the top of the game. You can just mouse over a given card, and it will explain to you in text what all the icons mean in an individual level. And this is a marvelous little primer. And so I have to give credit to the de developers of the adaptation, Souris du Désert and Galahar, for doing excellent work, a couple of fine French developers. And as a result, they both very much appreciated the game, even though it was on their effectively their first play, or the first play in several years. They were effectively coming to it as though it were for the first time. And Race for the Galaxy has a bunch of different expansions. My understanding is that it's going to be republished soon with the first wave or the first set of three expansions already bundled in the box, which is a tremendous amount of content. I don't know what the price point's going to be, and I don't know what the specific release plans are, but honestly, it's going to be a bevy of available options. And again, Race for the Galaxy is my all-time favorite tableau builder as of now. Thomas Lehman absolutely knows what he's doing. More on that in a little bit. And I highly recommend you give it a shot on Board Game Arena if you haven't already given it a try. Because especially since about five years ago, there was a tremendous glut of tableau builders. And I really feel that none of them really came close to capturing the genius of Race for the Galaxy. So that was my further experience with Race for the Galaxy. So I'm glad you brought up Race for the Galaxy, Mark, because all the games that I talk about, uh, we stream, right? So if you ever want to check out these games that I talk about, you can go to our uh, YouTube live channel and you can watch them there. And friends of the stream, Mark, they're called uh, Brain in a Jar. We had been talking all week because there was a dilemma at the household of theirs where they needed to make room for a game and they had to get either rid of Race for the Galaxy or Roll for the Galaxy, Ah. I know what your answer is going to be, but maybe if you give your opinion, maybe it will it'll ease their guilty conscience. <laughs> I find that Roll for the Galaxy, although clever, is uh, much more narrow in terms of its approach. Roll for the Galaxy is an awful lot about making sure you're able to cycle your dice through properly. Whereas Race for the Galaxy, in my experience, has much more flexibility in terms of how you manage card flow, or even if you care for card flow much at all. On top of that, the expansions for Race for the Galaxy can add a large degree of variety in the form of new cards, and you don't have to introduce any of the new rules modules if you're not inclined, although I like many of them, as opposed to Roll for the Galaxy, where the expansions are A, very expensive, and B, kind of nuts. They're, they're, they're really rather wild, and so as a consequence, I, I found that my burnt out on Roll for the Galaxy much, much faster than I would have anticipated. So given the choice between the two, I would absolutely pick Race for the Galaxy. And finally, if, it's, if, if space is a consideration, I have all of Race for the Galaxy 
the base game and all three expansions in one of the expansion boxes. And so it's much, much smaller. So there you go. That was my advice as well, Mark. Speaking our main streaming day, we played a game called Decorum, Mark, and I think you would like this one. I'm interested to give it a try with you. And it is a cooperative game where you have this house and it starts populated with some furniture and then everyone is given sort of a hidden agenda. It's like, uh, I don't want any antiques on the right-hand side of the house. I also don't want any modern objects in the kitchen. I also can't have any of the rooms painted green. All right. So everyone has three of these types of goals. And so on your turn, you're, you're, you're repainting rooms, you're adding objects to the rooms. And then after you've done that, everyone sort of comments on whether they like that particular change or not. You're like, I hate it. Or that is the worst. Or it's like, <laughs> uh, it's okay. I can take it or leave it. And then after they've sort of commented, you can say like, I am fulfilled, which means all of your things are complete. And so they have to sort of work off of that information. After a few turns, you get to trade one of those pieces of information with, I shouldn't say trade, you get to give one of those pieces of information to one player and they also get to do the same. So you might get one of their pieces of information, you might not. And then you sort of keep going until you, I think it's 30, 30 turns and you hopefully everyone you know, they've made the scenario so there is a way to puzzle out that everyone will be fulfilled with some sort of crazy give and take in the house somewhere. It is very cool. We played two games. Second game is very wild where where uh, Warm Boy had one of his conditions was there's three different colors, of course, yellow, green, and red, and blue, sorry, four different colors, and there had to be an even number of objects in the whole house. So there had to be like three blue, three green, three yellow, three red. They had to be all the same number. And Sidewinder, hers, she thought hers read the same. And we all did, the three of us, before we gave, before Dewey got to see the card and we turned it up so everyone could see it, was hers had to be even, which you'd think would be the same, but it meant actually even numbered. Oh, sure. Uh item types. So it wasn't colors for her, it was item types. So the antiques, the modern, there's a bunch of different types of objects. And and she had to either have zero, two, four, six of all those items in the house. So trying to get that balance with the colors, without some people knowing other information with, you know, all sorts of other different modifiers. It was very interesting. And I can't, I'm looking forward to playing it again. Is This is designed by... Sorry, go on. This is designed by Harry Mackin, Charlie Mackin, Drew Tenenbaum, and it's put out by Floodgate Games. Is it really Decorum. the case they use the term fulfilled? I am fulfilled? Yes. I am fulfilled. That is amazing. I it, it calls to mind some of those shots of those HGTV shows where, you know, you bring in home decorators and renovators and they knock out a wall and they completely change the decor of a room and then they bring the homeowners back and one of them is completely aghast at what they've done. It's like, we hear you like music, so we made it a disco parlor. And they're like, what have you done to my living room? Anyway, it does sound interesting. So, another reason why I decided to play Race for the Galaxy, independently of my enthusiasm for the game, was I needed to purge the awful taste from my palate of having had to play Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition. Now, oh, why, why did I do this to myself, you might wonder? I, and that's because oh, I'm a professional. I do man. this for you, for the sake of my listeners. And honestly, reading the rules, I'm like, well, look, 
if you're going to be ripping off Race for the Galaxy yet more flagrantly than the extent to which previous terraforming Mars efforts have, how bad could it really be? Because Race for the Galaxy is brilliant. Surely it can at least be capture some quality by virtue of it being a pale imitation. No, no, not at all. Because you can completely steal the role selection element of Race for the Galaxy without, I should note, attribution. You should absolutely attribute such things in the rulebook. Costs you nothing. You should do it. A little bit of a classless move. And the card balance, the way the card deck is set up, can make all the difference. And indeed, the way the fundamental economy of the game works. It takes what is a punchy, wide-open experience in Race for the Galaxy into a slog of repetitive upkeep and cube-fiddling and redundant cards and cards you can't play because the deck is full of bloat and redundant effects and a tableau you can't easily parse and cards that weren't cut to the same size during the printing. I don't know how they managed to do that in a single base box game. It was twice as long as it should have been about three to four times as long as a game of Race for the Galaxy, and all to the end of, well, I, I guess I need more money, so I guess I'm just going to do a production term, and so I'm going to get some money, and so I can put out this card. I'm putting out this card because it has the same icon that I need. Uh, it's the same as these three other cards that I've already played. Yay! Honestly, I, I I was really disappointed in particular at the work of Sidney Engelstein. Sidney Engelstein has done a lot of work on a lot of the Space Cadets games, as well as the Dragon and Flagon, all games that I would, you know, have big, uh, varying levels of appreciation for, but at the very least, they have all shown aspects of whimsy and uniqueness, whereas Ares Expedition has neither. It is simultaneously painfully derivative and aggressively mediocre. And you you uh, uh, asserted that this was some sort of craven, cynical marketing ploy. I, I disagree. It feels a little bit like the original Terraforming Mars, and it was co-designed by Jacob Frixelius, who designed Terraforming Mars. So in that sense, at least, you can trace the, the DNA, both conceptually and in terms of personnel. So I, I'm not willing to go that far. I'm just willing to say that it's not really a game that anyone should play, especially since, look, even if you don't like Race for the Galaxy, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of better tableau builders that are available. Even setting aside the fact that our favorites are uh, 51st State Master Set and Race of the Galaxy, you can find better ones, even a lot of the other mediocre ones. At the end of the day, it's a toss-up for me whether I'd rather play Ares Expedition or actual Terraforming Mars, because yes, Terraforming Mars is considerably longer and considerably yet overlong, but at least has a tiny bit more player interaction in that it has a tiny bit. And you get to do a few more interesting things in terms of manipulating your card tableau as opposed to Ares Expedition, which is just a step backward in terms of usability and in terms of interest. So I have no intention of going back. I don't recommend anyone giving it a shot if you can. And yes, hobby designer games in big box mass retail is a good sign. But surely we can do better than this. So that was Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition by Sidney Engelstein, Jacob Frixelius, and Nick Little, published by Stronghold Games. Mark, I got to play a game called Factory 42. This is a review copy from Line Rampant. It is designed by Timo Maltamaki and published by Dragon Dawn Productions. So, Mark, there are four phases to this game. Let me just introduce you to these phases. Only four, not forty-two. Very interesting. Just, just four. Well, maybe if you just a moment more on that in a second. <laughs> uh, so, there's the card phase, and you're putting out these inventions that help you do actions. There are uh, a, there's the event deck that helps you keep track of the turns. 
There is uh, Elven, Elven Inventions as well. That will get you more victory points. There's the Fluctuating Market. So you'll put a new market card in the market space that will change the prices of everything. And then there is the worker placement phase and everyone has six workers in the, in anything but a two player game. You'll have more, but any other player count, you'll have six. So in turn order, you put out your workers and then you start the 15 phase worker resolution phase. Okay. Now this being said, if not every one of those 15 places was taken, then you don't have to go through the phases, but there's even phases that don't even have workers. Oh, wow. That was drawn to, I was drawn to this game because it has a cube tower mark. Ooh. And this is a cube tower that has the most theme. This whole game is dripping with theme. I love all of that part of it. It is called the bureaucracy tower. So you're going to have these government contracts, which is pretty well the main part of the game. And you have to fulfill those. You give them the resources they need and you fulfill them. And anyone can fulfill them in that turn. And you can even fulfill them multiple times yourself. There are three tiers of fulfillment for each one. And you'll get rewards based on which one you do. It is de- It is said that this is a semi-cooperative game. And I felt that it was. There are a few things like the fact that if you don't build all of those contracts, everyone will lose points. There is a furnace that you get steam from to do, to build these things and you need to work together not to blow it up. And you are filling carts. There's other things like where you're filling carts and assigning carts that you, that, you know, you have to do semi-cooperatively. Everyone else didn't think it would. They said it was all cutthroat. They wouldn't listen to what I was saying. But anyway, (laughs) like I was saying, the bureaucracy tower. So there's a phase of the game where you're putting, where you you, uh, resolve the workers and you're sort of requisitioning all of these cubes. You're saying, okay, we need all these, we need some gold, you need some flax. There are quite a few resources. So you, you get all of these cubes together, plus all the cubes you had from last turn. And then after everyone's purchased them, you drop them into the tower. And those are the cubes that the government actually sends you to fulfill wonderful. the orders. It is very wonderful. And then, like I said, I'm skipping a bunch of phases because there are 15. I'm not going over them all. Good call. Then there is the load the carts. They give you these little mini, these little rail carts that you build. There's filling the carts. So if you place workers there, you get to fill the carts and they go down the track. And then there's another phase where you get to assign the carts. So if you've put workers there, you can say, I would like to give this cart to myself. <laughs> you have worker there. But you can, you can also assign them to other people because you want, you don't want to get negative victory points. You want all of the contracts fulfilled. So you sort of talk and say, can you fill a cart like this for me? And then give it to Jay, give it to uh, Louie so he can fulfill that contract type thing. So you're passing them out. And then every space also has a commissar spot and they don't get to do the action, but they, they modify the action. So that's very interesting. Lots of different things going on, but it just took so long Mm. and, and I don't know what to say. There was just something about it that didn't quite work right. There was, there was, it's hard to say. This is the first play. You can watch the video and see what you think yourself. I, I would like to show it to you. Factor 42, 
even though it was not enjoyed by everyone, I definitely want to play it one more time. It's, I really love the theme. It sounds fascinating. It also sounds a little bit, in terms of its failings, like another game by Timo Multimaki that I tried called The Phantom League. The Phantom League was yet another attempt at doing a sort of you're a space privateer slash merchant slash freelancer flying around customizing your ship there was a weird sort of deck building mechanic for combat resolution there was this interesting notion of being allied with various planets and it didn't really cohere it was just a little too sprawling a little all over the place didn't know how to edit down its ideas and it sounds a little bit like factory 42 might run afoul of the same problem yeah it's a very rough teach like going through like the 15 phases plus the cards plus the cleanup plus the worker placement so lots going on lots to teach Plus all the different cards that will come up with, you know, events and the contracts, lots of things. But it was kind of neat. Like I said, if you don't get your cart, you can go to the market. Hopefully the market is favorable to you this turn or you have some cubes left over. There's all sorts of things I didn't touch on. Like you have your own warehouse where you can buy cranes and extra spaces. And there are actually two docks where you're going to put rail carts and you can only use resources from those carts on certain actions. So you got to definitely put them in the right spot. So lots of decisions to make. But I think a second play will be much more interesting. Factory 42. Paradoxically, despite the fact that it's so incredibly boring, I find games that model bureaucracy well to be occasionally fascinating. So Power Struggle, which is a game almost entirely about bureaucracy, but here corporate bureaucracy, is wonderfully cynical and satirical and very interesting in terms of how it represents personnel management. And the aspect of government forward planning, the idea that you can requisition resources and maybe they'll show up, maybe they won't, strikes me as very interesting and vaguely reminiscent of one of my favorite maps for Age of Industry, which is the USSR map, whereby every turn the Politburo says, we would like you to build these things. And your response may be, we don't need coal in Siberia. And the Politburo says, we would like you to build these things. And so it has this bizarre effect on the economy, whereby you've got this central planning element that sets priorities out, turns in advance, and then by the time it comes comes to fruition it makes no sense maybe it never made sense maybe it didn't make sense then but it makes sense now and the party gets to say yes we saw this coming and it's again marvelously cynical marvelously satirical and it actually represents interesting economic choices and so i i mean i i share your interest your your presentation makes it sound structurally very interesting even if it doesn't necessarily cohere so i'm absolutely willing to give it a shot even knowing that it might be too cumbersome for its own good and the opposite of too cumbersome for its own good is nedavalier so Nadavalier is a lovely little blind bidding game. And the problem with the the only problem with Nadavalier, insofar as there's a problem, is that I personally found it was a little easy to get burned out on Nadavalier. You know, if you play it a whole bunch of times in rapid succession, there's not a tremendous amount of card variety, to be sure. There's some variety in terms of heroes. If you start recruiting the right dwarves, because that's what you're bidding on, you can then recruit heroes, and the heroes provide some variety, but honestly, they, they tend to provide relatively subtle effects. And that's okay. It's a very simple, very constrained game, and it doesn't last very long. It doesn't overstay its welcome, and it's got lovely components and art, and that's all for the good. The only problem is, I, when it first came out, we played it something like six to ten times in very rapid succession, and it left me a little bit burned out, to be frank. And the expansion, Thingvalier, uh, added a little bit, but not a whole heck of a lot in my estimation. So again, it gives it a little bit more legs, a little bit more lifespan, but again, not something that I want to play all the time. 
And so returning back to it every few months or so for a quick 30-minute jaunt is probably my ideal level of use for Nidavellir, even with the expansion or without the expansion. But of course, that is certainly better than not wanting to go back to the game at all. So we had a good time. We, we're now at the point, having played it enough times, that we have now personified a lot of the heroes, and we start smack-talking other people's preferences with respect to heroes that, that they can take. For example... There's one set of heroes called the Dwerg family. There are five of them. They give you increasing amounts of points if you have more Dwergs. And so we we can start the Dwerg chant. And we if someone goes in for Dwergs early, we talk about how they're Dwerg, Dwerg early, Dwerg often. And then they start giving casting impredations against my preferred hero, which is Thrud. Thrud knows what's up. Thrud for life. Hashtag. So this is this is a sign that we have now internalized the game to the extent that we're now just at pure smack talk levels, put down our coins, and then just talk trash about other people's life choices. And, you know, friendship. So happy to go back, but, you know, not too often because I don't want to get burned out again. That is Nadavalier and with the first expansion, Thingvalier. This is by Serge Vaget, released by, I never know how to say this publisher, it's G-R-R-E, I guess it's G-R or something... I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's how it's pronounced. Initially published in 2020. Lastly for me, Mark, you and I played Dune Imperium a few times on Tabletop Simulator. And so I wanted to play it in real life. So months ago, I bought a copy and lent it out and never got to play it until this week. Aha, twist ending. Twist ending. So someone who very much enjoys the game brought it over with the expansion this is designed by Paul Drennan and put out by Dire Wolf. And a few things are changed. I guess they thought people would go back and forth between a couple of spaces, get resources, get victory points. So now instead, you get spice, get troops. They, you, now you just shift over to two different spaces and get, <laughs> you know, and go back and forth between those. And they seem to want to put more emphasis on the combat. They even put these dreadnoughts in the game, which will stay in your reserve. You'll even be able to cover up the flags. If people know the flags on some of the worker spaces that get you benefits, you can put your dreadnought on top and you will get the benefit instead or instead of you know, or as well as type thing. That being said, the person that went heavy into military both times did not win. So I'm not sure if that worked out the way they wanted. I only had one bad thing to say, but we played it twice in a row. So I think it might've emphasized this point. They have these intrigue cards and some of these intrigue cards give you victory points as long as you fulfill certain goals, which is great. It gives you something to do. You start you know, uh, working towards these goals, you're almost there. And then someone goes to a space that says, if you have four or more cards, take one from another player. And yoink, that victory condition card that you've been working towards is now gone. So I don't know what to say about that, Mark. I know the space is there. Why don't I get down to below three cards, to three cards? So they can't take those cards. Well, I guess I'm dumb. <laughs> No, I agree with you. The Intrigue card deck is a bit all over the place. So too is the draw deck. I mean, in my experience of the couple times we played, the market can just get clogged up with garbage. For a deck builder, you don't really do much deck building, which is okay. I mean, not every deck builder has to have huge changes in your decks. After all, Mage Knight, you don't acquire that many cards, especially when compared to your original deck. So I'm saying, I guess, that Dune Imperium is just like Mage Knight. 
And uh, I, my, my chief complaints were just that things felt a little bit uneven, a little bit sloppy. The intrigue deck bothered me, and it was just way too long for what it was. The, I've yet to find a worker placement deck construction hybrid that really works for me. I mean, I found uh, Lost Runes of Arnak basically repetitive and shallow. I found Dune Imperium a little bit too long. I'm still waiting for this formula to, to, to be done right. Well, the expansion, I think, did fix up that problem we had with the cards. If you, if no one buys from the market, then it's completely wiped. Uh, but oh, they good. inject they injected so many cards that it, it seemed to flow fairly quickly. People were buying cards. Oh, that's good. I, I did. I definitely felt a change in my in my deck way more than it did when we played on Tabletop Simulator. They have even have more races with very interesting powers. Are, are you saying it's not like Mage Knight anymore? Not quite like Mage Knight. Oh. A little bit more like Runes of Arnok. Oh, okay. Is is Runes of Arnok basically Mage Knight? Yes. Oh, okay. Good. The world makes sense to and me. that again. was my experience this week with Dune Imperium. And those are the games we played last week. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice. It's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. And now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So first off, Christophe Boulanger is one of those designers whose work I reliably find interesting. He designed Dungeon Twister. He designed Earth Reborn. He also designed the very controversial but nonetheless fascinating Archipelago. And he's been relatively silent over the past couple of years, but he's been teasing the release of his upcoming Civilization-ish game called Rise and Fall. It's going to be published once again by Ludicali, which is the publisher he tends to work with. And the Kickstarter is going to be launching in July, so I'm looking forward to seeing more information about Christophe Bonanger's upcoming Rise and Fall. More crowdfunding news currently up on GameFound is Doomrock Ultimate. I've been talking about Doomrock for years because I'm a huge, huge fan of Doomrock. You can now get the Doomrock Ultimate version, which has a whole bunch of content in the base box. A number of people have been commenting that the price of the game seems steep. It's 79 euros for the base game, but the base game here, remember, contains more than several expansions already baked into the uh, to the base game box. Now, if you start looking at the all-in pledge with, like, the metal coins, you don't manipulate coins very much, the playmat, which is unnecessary in my estimation, the roguelike expansion, which, again, I'm somewhat dubious on, I then, of course, the, the price creeps up. But I'm absolutely in for the base game. I, I don't know if I'll be getting in for any of the other things. But Doomrock is an amazing, amazing game. And the amount of content in the base game is truly astounding. And that is Doomrock Ultimate on GameFound. All right. Other Kickstarter news. There's a game there now called Castles by the Sea, designed by John Benjamin and Michael Zerb. 
put out by Brotherwise Games. And Mark, if you want to play little tiny people that live by the sea and build giant sandcastles to live in, only to have them destroyed by tourists and dogs and have to rebuild them. And you're building little block sandcastles. It looks very charming. That sounds delightful. Exactly. Very delightful. Can't wait to play it. I've heard good things. Castles by the sea. Initially, I thought you were going to say that the castles were inevitably destroyed by the tides, which would be a fascinating Sisyphusian take. There is there is an expansion that is... Ah. is is going to be some waves coming in. Well then, some follow-up from last week. Robotech Macross Dogfight. I talked about this as well on Bloat, more on that later, but I have to give an unfortunate addendum to my enthusiasm for Robotech Macross Dogfight. This is being put out by Kids Logic. Kids Logic put out the base game a few years ago, and I have the base game, which is an unsatisfying starter set of just two miniatures, or just two units, rather. Uh, they have an outstanding Kickstarter that was supposed to be funded two years ago and hadn't been updated for well over a year. There's a term for Kickstarters like that. I think, is that true? I thought they gave an update just before this new Kickstarter yes. launched. Exactly. Well, see, there you go, Mark. Obviously, things are moving along. Clearly, things are moving along. Yeah. So, um... I am not going to be backing this, and I honestly cannot encourage anyone else to back this either. A special thanks to the people who pointed this out to us, as well as the King of Average for connecting the dots between the, the business links between the ostensibly new company and Kids Logic, who ran the, I'm just going to say, failed Kickstarter of <laughs> a while back, a similarly licensed miniatures product. So the good news is, though, that Kids Logic does have an online store. So if this project ever succeeds in any way they will be happy to take your money once the thing actually exists so i'm going to wait and see podcast news i'm going to be on board game barrage this thursday april the 28th board game barrage being the second most swaggy board game podcast available on the internet and as you well know the way to evaluate the quality of board gaming podcasts is to evaluate how swag like they are so of course the most swag like is swag and the second most swag-like in that both you and I have done collaborations with them in the past is Board Game Barrage. Completely unrelatedly, Board Game Barrage is eligible for a Golden Geek Award. I don't know why I'm mentioning that. And I will be on an episode this Thursday. We had a lovely discussion about, strangely enough, board games. Finally, for me, this episode is a multiple of five. And on our multiple of five, we merely mentioned that we have a Patreon. So if you'd like to support us, thank you very, very much. We don't want to beg and we don't want to waste your time. Thank you. We have a Patreon. There's a new Patreon-exclusive show called BLOAT, which is a forced acronym for Mark Blathers On About Things. Uh, the initial response has been very, very positive, so I intend to keep doing it. And there are going to be follow-ups on various issues surrounding the news in the board games industry and other sundry musings in future installments of BLOAT. So if you're at all interested in becoming a Patreon to check out our exclusive content, you can find us on Patreon. We also have a Patreon Discord. We also do a sort of Kickstarter roundup every other week. Lots of fun. Patreon benefits. And lastly, in the news, in three weeks, we'll be doing another Q&A. So go to guild number 3236 or the Patreon Discord. I'll have a thread in both of those areas. I'll even put a thread on Facebook. If you have any questions, you can even email them to me at justrollthedice at gmail.com. We will answer your questions in three weeks. 
Thank you for participating. You can send it to us on any of our available social media and or contact information. You can find all of that collected at SoWrongGames.com slash contact. And now on to the main game of the week, which is El Grande. The big El Grande was designed by Wolfgang Kramer and Richard Ulrich. It was published initially by Hans and Gluck in 1995. And it has the distinction of being the only game at that time to have won both the SDJ, the Spiel des Jahres, as well as the DSP, the Deutsche Spiel Press. And I don't see that feat being repeated ever again, given that the SDJ has gotten increasingly light in terms of the games that it awards and the DSP going in the opposite direction. Now, Kramer and Ulrich, the team that designed this game, were also known for their collaboration in 2000 called Princes of Florence, which for a long time was a mainstay middleweight Euro action auction game. And Richard Wolfgang Kramer is a venerable and influential figure in the industry, and he's known primarily for his collaborations, uh, both with Richard Ulrich, of course, and also with Michael Kiesling, who d- he with whom he co-designed 1999's Taurus, and then the so-called Mask Trilogy, consisting of Tikal, Java, and Mexica, all action point selection games with a geographical and or tiling element. And... Wolfgang Kramer is also has the strange distinction of being the first German full-time professional board game designer. And before we go any further, we should just mention, like many games we talk about, El Grande has a very excellent board game arena implementation that has been developed by Van Lebar and Volker78. So thank you very much for your labor on that score. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in The Big? In The Big... You are learning to roll with the punches, turn on a dime, change direction, reevaluate your board position. You need to shift gears, reconsider your strategy, cut your losses. Why? Because someone played a lower or higher card than you did. Or used a power that makes your entire turn redundant. Think you're scoring points? Think again. You didn't pick the right region with your spinny dial thing. They randomly did. You didn't put enough meeples in the tower. What's the right number? More. But, but I spent turns making sure I had a majority. I know, I know. That's why I changed the scoring of that province. Now it's worth nothing. Okay, okay. This turn. I have the right card. I have the right power card. I'm playing last. Nothing can stop me. Veto! What do you, what do you mean? What do you mean, Veto? <laughs> What what does that do? Yay, El Grande! Oh, jeez, where to begin, Walker? Where to begin? All right, uh, well, here's a good place to begin. Now, all of these sundry misfortunes, reversals of fortune, and various frustrations of your plans, are these the consequences of uh, random events or players interfering with what you're doing? Oh, no, it's they're, they're perfectly planned out turns. They know exactly what they're doing. If you don't know El Grande, if you don't understand and are a master of El Grande, there's no way you can randomly know what power cards are going to come up or how many meeples are in the tower or what random pointy disc thing they decided to send their meeples from the tower to. I I disagree entirely. I think I think you've got it completely wrong. The the sort of leading question that I was asking was because I one of my personal bugbears is people who ought to know better 
issuing statements like, and I hear people say things all the time, well, this can't be a Euro, talking about some hypothetical game that they've just played, because there's lots of player interaction. To which, like, okay, so your your conception of what a Euro is necessarily excludes games like El Grande, games like Settlers of Catan, released in the same year for what it's worth, games like Hansa Teutonica. Like, Euros can and do have incredibly pointed and incredibly frequent player interaction. Just it tends to be of a different sort. They probably mean Euros that came out in the last two weeks. Yeah, something like that. And, or, or even not that much, like Kalamala, or even recent things that we've reviewed this year, such as Cryo. I mean, it, it, look, it can be done. It's just not necessarily something that people commonly associate with genre. That's fine. And I don't want to get into, into, into pitched terminological distinctions. I just get somewhat twitchy when people start getting very essentialist about what a, what a Euro has to be. And one of the reasons why I love returning to El Grande, and it is my favorite area majority game, bar none, is precisely because of how constantly interactive and dynamic it is. And I agreed with you, at least with the first half of your unhelpful explanation, because you do have to be able to turn on a dime. Because one of the things that often happens in area majority games is, you know, there's the pitched fight. Suddenly, it wasn't like someone beating somebody four to three. An escalation happened, and both players dug in, and now suddenly it's nine to eight. In a lot of other area majority games, that province or that region is then just going to be a sink, and those units are just going to sit there, and it's going to be very, very difficult to extract them. One of the great things about a grande is there are intrigue cards that say, ah, just pick up all your guys, distribute them around the board. There you go, you can reposition, and suddenly the entire board state has indeed changed on a dime. Not in a random way, not in an arbitrary way, but as a consequence of people's decisions, and now people have to reevaluate what they're doing and what they're going for. Yeah, it's definitely not a heads-down game. You need to know exactly what all your opponents are doing, and not only that, it's when they are doing them. The timing in El Grande is so essential, I, I don't even think you can put enough emphasis on the timing of El Grande. I agree with you that it is largely a tactical game. And if you have the vision of planning out, say, more than a couple rounds ahead, then you're probably asking for trouble. I mean, you can absolutely plan for the future and make contributions that are going to pay off a couple rounds later, but you can't be too fixed on what your idea of those things are going to look like. And I can completely respect the fact that somebody might be approaching El Grande with the idea that this is my region. Next turn, I will build on this and go here. And then the turn after that and the turn after that. Well, guess what? Next turn, the board might look completely differently and you're going to have to roll with it or it's not going to go your way. Yeah, and the timing is so essential because there is this figure called the king. And the king will move, and any territory that the king is in cannot be infected. Infected, yes. In any way. (laughs) Infected. It can't be infected, it's true. Can't be affected either. And when you have, there's a a general uh, action in the game. When you play a card, you get to populate uh, territories, and you can only populate the territories that are adjacent to the king. And then there are a bunch of uh, power cards that will also affect your turn if they go off before you get to act. There is one that will clean out your whole supply of meeples, so you won't be able to play any. There are cards that will reduce it, so you don't get to play as many, or, or meeples will move. Lots of things can happen before it is your turn. So like like I said, like Mark said, you need to be able to roll with the punches and and eke out the little advantages that you can don't concentrate on the one card that you wanted. If things change, 
reassess and maybe another card is more important for you at the time. But now I think you're overemphasizing the degree to which it's tactical because at the top of the round, you know the universe of possible effects. It's not as though you get a random card at the start of everybody's turn. There are a lot of games that are basically trumped up area majority games, like, for example, the coin system, where just new stuff arrives at the top of every turn, and you have no ability to predict what it's going to be. First of all, you're right that there's a benefit of experience. There are kind of generalizations you can make about what kind of cards show up in which piles. But even setting that aside, if you're flying completely blind, at the top of the round, you see all of the action cards that are going to be executed, or that might be executed. The only thing that's uncertain is who is going to take which, and what order in which they're going to be executed. But that too is under your control because there's this lovely two-phase structure. You bid for turn order, and the lower your bid, the more you're able to manipulate your supply. And then in turn order, you get to draft these action cards that are available. And so if something comes up that says score all the five regions, well, I can just look and see who is sitting in first place in the five regions. Am I going before this person am I going after? Well, if I'm going before, I have a couple of choices. I can take the card and not execute it, or what I can try to do is make sure that I'm in second place in a whole bunch of five regions and thereby draft off of their actions. Or I can just decide to ignore that fight entirely and decide to put my energies elsewhere. So the degree of unanticipated nonsense for a game this dynamic, I find it to be very low. And I, I think you're overselling it. The one card is always the same. It is move the king. The other four cards are in set decks. So it's not as though, so, and I think there are, are situated in such a way that, you know, certain cards won't come up, you know, with each other. Like right. two cards that shouldn't trigger together will be in the same deck. So there's no way that they'll come up at the same time. So I think they did a great job of balancing it that way. I do want to go back to the bidding that you talked about. Sure. Because I think it's just a very fantastic system where you start the game with 13 cards and they're sort of scaled because you have to keep this balance between... Meeples in your province, which is much like Kanza Tatanaka, your bad supply, and Meeples in your court, which is your good supply. So you can't take Meeples from your, your province and put them on the board. They have to be in your court. And this will be determined by the, the, the bidding cards you play because you can't play a card that someone's already played in that round. And like we said, the higher card, they're numbered one through 13. The lower the card, the more meeples you can transfer from your province to your court. So it's a great little sort of balance system. It's like, well, I, I really want to go early, but my meeple supply is so low. I'm going to just sacrifice this turn and play the one and fill up my court. Great decision spaces like that. One of the core and common dilemmas in El Grande is I want to go early. I want to grab the king card because, number one, I want to lock down a region because it's favorable to me right now. And I want to be able to place the five cubes. I have an addition with cubes, by the way. In my heart, El Grande is always cubes, but there have been additions with meeples. So you might hear me talk about cubes and Walker talk about meeples. And I want to be able to place those five cubes and really be able to spread my influence either before or after moving the king. But as you say, in order to go early, in order to be able to grab that card, because it's usually one of the early cards grabbed, not always, but usually, you have to be able to play a high card, but that means that your supply needs to have been healthy before going into it. That is one of those areas where I say, you know, the, the horizon for planning can stretch a round or two out. You know, you play late in one round, you get a nice healthy supply, and you figure, okay, next turn I can just bid real high in turn order and not have to worry about it. 
And there's a very, very common maneuver. Since there's scoring every three rounds, the multiples of three rounds tend to get very, very tense in terms of where to put the king, because you know that the king ain't going to move again before the next scoring comes up. And so that tends to be very, very hotly contested. Yeah, because not only does he protect a territory, but he also, you know, it's it's a double-edged sword of where the king is. But on top of that, it is also worth two extra victory points on top of everyone gets to start with a home territory. And if they control that, they will also get two extra victory points on top of what each one is worth. Yeah, that, that, that actually reminds me of a very, very minor niggle. Most of my objections to La Grande actually are relatively minor. I don't think it's a perfect game. But one of my objections, which is super petty, so I'll get it right out of the way, it's called El Grande. Your piece, which is which is the Grande, is one of the least consequential pieces in the game. <laughs> yeah, and I just thought, I, I'm, I, know, I doubt it's the same in all copies, but it's like, you're putting out meeples and your and the thing they decide to use to designate your home territory is also a meeple. And for people who have never played it, that might lead to a little confusion because all it does is designate that as your home territory. And so if you control it, you'll get two extra points. It does not add to the to the strength. It does not, even though it's a meeple. You know, in many other games, the big meeple is the strongest meeple. It's true. So so, but not in this game. In previous editions, it's a very large cube. A grande cube, if you will. Another minor niggle I have is that you do have to use the silly terminology of provinces versus court. Any area majority game, I tend to talk about good supply and bad supply because a lot of them tend to be language independent. You know, your Stouffer Dynasty, your Hansa Teutonica, your Louis XIV, and I can just call them whatever I want. More than once, I haven't made this mistake in years, but more than once I've explained the game of El Grande from beginning to end using good supply and bad supply. I then turn up the first transaction cards and then I remember, oh yeah, I'm sorry. You can't call them cubes, they're caballeros. You can't call it the good supply, it's your court. And you can't call it the bad supply, it's the provinces. Sorry, everyone. And But even if you explain it properly, in my experience, people do tend to get a little bit confused. Because, again, it's one of those rare euros where there's lots and lots of text because all the action cards are explained textually rather than than, than with icons. And so that that is also, for what it's worth as a minor note, has led to a series of misprints in some of the editions. Although all the recent printings have been from my understanding, error-free. And then not only do the region score, but the flying prison that launches guys <laughs> out also scores. The Castillo, yes. The Castillo, so the uh, phase that we talked about when you're putting uh, meeples out on the regions that are adjacent to the king, you can instead drop your meeples into this tower. It's not a cube tower, it's not random. They're not going to get stuck in there. Yeah, it's not a cube tower. Out. It's a tower for cubes. It's an important distinction. It, it is a very important distinction. So there's a specific specific phase, i.e. just before the regions are scored, you will everyone will pick up their dial. This dial is also used for some of the power cards where you will pick random territories as well. That You will keep get using affected. that word. I don't think it means what you think it means, but go on. You'll you'll turn the dial to a particular region. This is where, if you have any uh, meeples in the tower, they will all get dumped into after you score the tower. So everyone sets their dial, then you count up the meeples who have raised the most there. Same thing, area majority will get the, the Castillo points, and then you put the meeples out into the territories, and then they are scored. So they will completely affect the scoring of the regions as well. 
I have two questions for you, Walker, about the Castillo, because the Castillo it relates to two perennial controversies in board gaming, not specific to El Grande, but generally. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts because it, it occurs to me I'm, I'm not really certain about either of these questions. Number one, hidden trackable information. So the Castillo is nominally hidden trackable information. When you dump cubes into the Castillo, you're supposed to say how many cubes you're dumping. Uh, but after that, you're not supposed to discuss how many cubes each person has. You wait until the big reveal and, and you see the number. I know a lot of gamers who hate hidden trackable information. I have no problem with it necessarily in games generally. What about you? I was thinking if this is a game that you play often, it's not a problem. But a lot of times you're relearning it or introducing it to new people. And the glut of completely different power cards that come up every turn is something to that they constantly have to be looking at. And sometimes they might not notice this yet other mechanism that's going on off to the side. And then suddenly, you know, oh, it's even more scoring. And now it's like coming out onto the board and all of their nicely laid plans are destroyed because of this, you know, random addition of meeples. You keep using that word. Okay, fair enough. I don't share that impression, but I can certainly see how some gamers might might be distracted. Is it the is it is it the random part that you're not? That yeah, you, you keep saying random. Well, it's, it's true. It is not. It is not random. There's definitely thought to it, but it, it could seem to some people that it's random. They could say, "Well, why didn't they put them there? They could have got more points there, or they could they why didn't they go there?" And they just happened to go to this. Like I, I, I just wanted this extra point, but no, they they you denied <laughs> that point. Well, I don't know that there's a correct answer to this question. There is, as I say, it's a perennial controversy about whether doublethink is random because there's this whole discussion about input randomness versus output randomness, et cetera, et cetera. It's deterministic in the sense of output randomness. Once everyone makes their decisions, it's going to proceed deterministically. But if I'm putting in cubes in an attempt to make a play for region one, I can be undercut by somebody who's already in the lead in Region 1 doubling down and putting their cubes there. Similarly, by trying to make a play into a new region, I might be threatened by someone else making a play online. So this is a function of how many cubes I've put in a Castillo, how many cubes I think other people have put on a Castillo, how fragile I think my holdings are, and how vulnerable other people's holdings happen to be. And this, I think, informs a very pleasing game of doublethink and of risk evaluation, not really a random allocation. Generally speaking, I have been outraged and surprised and shocked by people and where they've decided to send cubes from the uh, Castillo. But usually, after a second of reflection, I realize I should have seen that coming, or I made a calculated risk and it didn't pay off. And to me, that's you, not randomness. Sweet. You mean you're not supposed to spin the spinner? <laughs> So th there are power cards that I find pretty unsatisfying. There's one in particular that says everyone chooses a region and reveals it simultaneously. A region is only scored if selected by multiple players. This one almost never triggers because you can't, I mean, the, the amount of collusion that would have to be involved and someone's in the lead. I mean, maybe if a region's tied, maybe then sometimes people will do it. And then there's the other really weird power card that said everyone chooses a region. A region will score unless it has been selected by two players. And that one starts getting everyone panicking. <laughs> because you might start worrying that someone else is going to pick your region so as to prevent it from being scored. So they think... Maybe I should choose some other region. But then wait, no. Maybe I'm just giving up on the chance to score my region. <laughs> it's... it's 
It's weird. I'm not a huge fan of the effect that it has on the game, but I am a fan on, on the level of double think that it encourages on the players. Another great use for the Castillo is sometimes uh, players can team up in a way and use the king to block off certain parts of the map. And the Castillo Definitely. is a great way to inject that area with some of your meeples. You can't... Can, can you put... Yeah, you can put them where the king actually is. Yes, you can. No, so no, you, they, they, they bounce to your court. Oh, do they? Yes. All right, we'll omit that. Nothing thing. goes nothing goes in or out of the king's region except for the king. No infections allowed. So the, you said it yourself. There you go. So if they're protecting that area with the king, you can inject new meeples there. You can't put them where the king actually is, but if they were sort of blocking off that area or, you know, having the king away from a certain area, because exactly. like I said, you can only put uh, meeples adjacent to the king if they're keeping the king away from an area, then now that's a great way to get some power in there. I have two points left. One is this is a very easy game to teach. It's an older Euro, has very basic rules. You pick a card in turn order. That's uh, actually a very other, very interesting sort of mechanism of the game because you see what the person has picked. You can definitely either go lower or higher than that player, but then if you're second, then you're sort of not sure what the people behind you are going to do. Interesting decisions there, but Anyway, you, and then whoever has the highest will pick a power. You do that three turns in a row. You score, game, and you do that three times. Game's over. I agree that it is very easy to teach, like many games of its era. The one aspect, actually, that I find trips players up is not the the power cards that will will turn up because I actually find generally speaking new players are enjoying the discovery of what the game system allows them to do the different levers that open up what I find can trip people up is the fact that this is one of those games where sometimes you run out of cubes total not just run out of cubes in your supply I mean run out of physical cubes they're all on the board and sometimes places you don't want to be And I find that this is one of those things that I tend to start warning players usually about two or three turns into the game if they're constantly placing lots of cubes onto the board. It's like, look, it's not uncommon in some game states to run out of cubes by turn seven or eight, and it's not a good place to be. I mean, of course, there are ways around it. As as we've talked about, there are tons of power cards that allow you to reposition, that allow you to redeploy. But it's a strange effect that people are not typically accustomed to in the context of very majority games. They figure more is always better. And to a certain extent, that's true. But there's that. Uh, the other thing that I think is worth mentioning with respect to El Grande's shortcomings, and this is, I think, the hugest shortcoming of, of El Grande, is it is very inflexible in terms of ideal player count. The box says two to five. This is what we politely call a lie. A brazen lie. Yes, you can play it with two, but you shouldn't. There are some games that are good area majority games with two. Iwari slash China slash Han slash Web of Power is one, but El Grande is not one of them. Some people won't even play the game with four. Some people swear that it's five or nothing. I'm happy to play El Grande with four. If someone really wanted to, I would even consider three, but probably three is pushing it. My preferred player count is five, but I'm happy to play with four. Well, when you're at the beginning when you talked about it, I thought there was one power card that you might want to tell players beforehand because it had been quite a while since I had played it since I went back to it this week and I thought well why don't I go low 
for the first few turns and just dump all of my meeples into my court and then I just don't have to worry about it anymore. But there ah. is a power card that dumps out your entire court back into your province. And on reflection, I really think that that is a card that you should tell people about because that is, I don't think is a leap to say a, a decent uh, strategy is to, you know, get a large supply of meeples in your court so you don't have to worry about it. That's fair. I mean, there are counters. You can try to make a push for that card and then not execute it. You can try to make sure that you, knowing that that card is there, divest yourself of as many cubes as possible. You know, the round that comes out, you play your 13, you put out 5, and then you don't have to worry as much of a loss. But you're right. That is That, that I think, would be a reasonable card to warn players about. And Mark, you could even veto it. Absolutely. There is a power card that is veto that just stops another player. You hang on to it. It's not even another player that round. It's a card you just sort of hold on the side. And when someone gets a power card they can use, you just say, nope, you're not, you, you don't get to do that. Which reminds me of a very, another important part. When it comes to your turn, you get to the, the power card will tell you how many meeples you're putting out on the board. And it'll also tell you the power you get to do these in either order which is also very important because if it is move the king, you can place the workers and then move the king away, or you can move the king and then place the workers. Very important. The second part is you can just, like Mark said just a few moments ago, you can pass on the card power. Just say, I don't want to do it and throw it away. Also very interesting mechanism. Yeah. And unlike other games where that feels like a waste or it feels like the kill Dr. Lucky problem. I hope someone else stops the, the player who would use that power very effectively. It's a very strong move and it feels satisfying to bid aggressively, take the card that somebody else desperately wanted, and then just not execute it. And then lastly for me, Mark, is when I was doing some research on this, this seemed to be compared a lot to Tammany Hall. Now, I played Tammany Hall a billion years ago once, so I don't remember it at all. But you... I've played a few times quite recently. So I'm wondering what your reflection on the comparison of those two games is. A number of people compare any area majority game to El Grande. And I think that that's just a testament to how good El Grande is and how influential it's been and how it towers in the genre. They're not especially similar, except in the sense that they're area majority games. And I love area majority games. I also love hand management, which El Grande has. And I love action cards and dual use cards, which El Grande also has. I don't think that Tommy Hall bears any particular mention as resembling El Grande any more than, again, the Michael Schacht area majority games or any number of other Euro area majorities that have been released in the quarter century or more since the release of El Grande. But I think that it's telling that people still talk about El Grande. And to my, for my money, it's still the best area majority game ever made. I agree, because what this game does is it sort of fixes a lot of the problems that area majority games have, like sort of the piling on the leader or uh, a the ABC problem where, you know, mm -hmm. A and B have it out and C gets all the benefit, turn order, all of these different pro – all of these problems are very well fixed in this game. I agree entirely. Do you have any experience with any of the expansions? Zero. So a variety of editions have been published in the past 15 years or so that 
bundle in all the expansions with the base game. There have been the Decennial Edition. There have been various big box versions. And I will just note that the big box versions, although they have meeples rather than cubes, which for some people is a step up, the Castillo becomes cardboard rather than the delightful chunky wood of the earlier editions. Anyway, get whatever version you can. They're all amazing games. But in the Sundry Omnibus versions, you can get all the expansions. Now, there's the Grand Inquisitor. There's the Colonies. There's a whole bunch of other things. I've tried some of them, and they're all varying shades of middling. They add rules grit, but they don't really add much depth. There's one exception, and that is the King, uh, Intrigue and the King. König and Intrigant. And it fundamentally changes the game, but in a very simple way. Normally in a game of El Grande, you have a bunch of power cards that you use to bid for turn order, and then in turn order you take an action card and either do the action or don't take the action. In Intrigue and the King... You the all uh, these decks get collapsed into your own personal deck. A given card is both a power card and it is an action. The trick is, number one, at the start of the game, everybody has a set of at least 18, possibly as many as 30, cards of which they choose 13. So there's a bit of deck construction at the start of the game that can be relatively simple if you want it to be or blown up to a, a larger universe if you want it to be. And... As you play the cards, you're simultaneously bidding for turn order and announcing what action you're going to do. The rub is that whoever goes first in turn order doesn't do what their card says. They do the king action instead. Whoever goes last in turn order doesn't do what their card says. They do a generic intrigue action instead. Sometimes you want this to happen. Sometimes you don't want this to happen. And the dynamics around this are beautiful. Someone plays an action card and the entire table looks at it and says, we can't let this happen. And there's no veto that's on the table. We have to make sure that this is the lowest or highest action card that's been played. Or you engage in shenanigans where you have a very, very, very low action card, but you want the action to take place. You have to wait for your time to strike and know that you can go higher than somebody else. It's mind-boggling how much the game changes as a consequence of this. Some people prefer it. Some people argue that the base game is better. I find them both equally solid and compelling but just radically different. And obviously, as you might imagine, because there's this deck construction element and these additional dynamics, Intrigue in the King is better with slightly more experienced players. I have had some success teaching it to new players because they wanted to try it that way first. And it absolutely works because even at its most complex, El Grande is not very complicated. But I do think that a solid basis in the base game is, is best first. But honestly, the fact that you can play with the system and get this incredible change in the way it works. It's one of the most interesting expansions I've ever tried, honestly, because it's hard to expand a simple game without fundamentally messing with its simplicity. Well, when you explained it to me, I realized that, you know, just to be clear, I have actually played, that was the very first game of El Grande that I played did have that expansion. Ah. After you explained it, I'm, I'm like remembering now that that is how I played drafting the cards, trying to pick 13 out of 18 cards, having no idea what they meant or how they were going to impact the game. Yeah, sorry about that. It was a very interesting experience, especially the fact I definitely played it when it came out. It would have been brand new. It would have been, you know, 20 years ago. So that is El Grande, and that is going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us. If you would like to get in touch with us, And remember, we are soliciting questions for an upcoming Ask Us Anything omnibus questions episode. Please reach out to us at any one of our contact 
venues at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for joining us and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bicking. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Hello, listeners. Thank you once again for joining us for Masterpiece Theatre. Presented in honor of our esteemed noble patron and inspiration, His Grace, Reverend Dr. Dr. Vincent, Duke of Diesel, Esquire, OBE. This week we will be discussing the six-episode anime on Netflix, The Orbital Children. Walker, your thoughts? The Orbital Children is about a, a couple of... a group of children that were born in space, and they were given cranial implants that, in a lot of them, killed them. And in a couple of them, they survived. And now they spend their time in space. And then there was a contest, and some other children got sent to space. And now there are more children in space. (laughs) And now there are more children in space. (laughs) And then there's a comet. And the comet is going to crash into Earth. The comet is being controlled by AI. And they have to reason with the AI to not destroy the planet. Spoilers, geez. I think that was a pretty good synopsis. Sure. I found in this anime, Mark, it was much like Endgame for Marvel, where I was cheering for the bad guy. <laughs> I think you'll probably agree with me that the one human bad guy in this entire show was the most interesting, yes. compelling one that had the most bizarre death. She was, I agree with you. She was fascinating. Um, the show, I, I'll say this. I found the first episode, uh, slow. I found the middle four episodes good. And I found the last episode to be one of the worst endings to anything I'd, I'd seen in a very long time. Even when compared to the legend of Korra, which always found new ways to disappoint me. Because there are two, like, stereotypical anime things that the show does a lot, uh, especially in the last episode. One of them is the sort of anime philosophy thing, where someone's babbling at you, and it's supposed to sound profound, but it's just like, whatever, this is all just deus ex machina nonsense. It's like what happened in the Matrix movie, where you go and meet the architect, and the architect just drones on for five minutes, and he's using big words, so you're supposed to think he's smart. And it's just like, we get it, Wachowskis, just move on. This is supposed to be a plot or character-driven movie, and I don't care about this this, this character or the plot that they're dumping. And the, the last half hour was just endless, absurd philosophizing without context and without substance. The other, pro- the other stereotypical anime problem I found was that the, the male lead, the protagonist, is so misanthropic and unpleasant in an aggressively unfriendly way, I wanted him off screen whenever he was on screen. There's a certain number of stock, like, shonen archetypes. It's like, I'm the 14-year-old boy. Am I the surly one with daddy issues who doesn't talk much? Am I the over-enthusiastic one that can think I can do anything? Or am I the misanthropic one that tells everyone that they should shut up and go die? Oh, look, we've got number three. And that was him in spades, and I did not like him at all. Yep, and to go back on to your starting point, 
this was a game about what show. it means for an AI. This is to... a show. This was a show, Walker. This wasn't a game. If you thought it was a game, Did that I might say, explain. Sorry, yeah. This was a show that uh, wanted you for a computer to learn what it was to be human. Yep. And Ghost in the Shell has already done this in spades and had done it very, very well. Well, I'm a sucker for that. It can't be done well. You're, you're right that it's been done many, many, many times, but they didn't do it well. I think, honestly, in the Orbital Children, there were the bones of maybe two decent movies. But they didn't do it right. We've got a coming-of-age story. We've got people born off-world coming to terms with living on Earth. We have the station isn't working right. We have to go fix it. We have what does it mean to be human? We have an AI went crazy and left behind a weird pseudo-cult. We have the challenges of AI threatening human dominance. We have like all of these things, all of these things in this, and, and it just like touches on them here and there. And sometimes it dwells on them long enough to be like, ooh, there's there's the germ of something interesting there. And it's like, wait, no, we got to move on to do something else now. And <sighs> it wasn't even that it was whiplash. It was just, as a result, everything was just sufficiently superficial that I couldn't grasp onto any of them. And I just yeah, wish of super, that they just Superficial were the, were the two kids that came from Earth. There was so oh, yeah. nothing. All that the characters were painful. underwritten. Each and every character yes. was aggressively underwritten. I, I agree. Uh, it's not that I hate children. Children can be good protagonists of oh, shows. Yes. Just these, these. So you're right to say that the quote unquote villain was the most interesting character, only because they were the only one that seemed to be motivated to do anything or, or, or have any interest to be like, oh, I want to hear more about this person, rather than just ugh, get them to shut up. Yes, we know you want YouTube followers. We get it. We all want YouTube followers. Just move on. That was the most painful character. Yeah. For sure. So, like I was saying, if you want AI to want to think it's human, check out Ghost in the Shell. If you want another type of biological creature to think that it's human, check out Parasite. These are two of my favorite animes of all time. The end. And that'll do it for this week at Masterpiece Theater. Thank you very much for joining us. And we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.